Welcome to BroadEye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. All right, so hello, everyone. Today, I'm going to be sitting with Dr. Stephen McIntosh, or as he's known to my family, Dr. Steve. Uh, Steve, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> there you go. So uh, just a little uh, background on you as before we get into everything. Well, I mean, you know what? Why don't you give us a just a very, very brief bio of who you are? Yeah, well, I I guess we could we could just to uh give a bit of background. Sean and I went to school together, grade school, high school, university, everything. And uh and both works worked in uh different areas of science. And now I'm living in in the east coast of Canada in Newfoundland, and I practiced in some rural optometry settings. So I I practice primary eye care. And uh, I'm a pretty regular uh, optometrist, I would say. Like I dabble with every different type of optometry or eye eye care that uh, is within my scope of practice and co-manage with other doctors in the area. Okay. So that's, uh, that's good. But I think you're, you're downplaying it because, you know, you have traveled quite a bit around the world, um, you know, provided eye care services and, uh, well, a lot of places. Um, we can, we're, we can dive into that another time, but what it's, it tells me is that you've had you know, a breadth of experience as a, an optometrist. And today what we're going to cover is something that you've probably seen, uh, everywhere you've gone and it's called dry eye. And it's something that many people uh, have experienced or, and some people chronically experience. So before I go too far into this and something I don't know that much about, can you give us a little bit of a, a background on what exactly dry eye is and uh, maybe highlight a couple of the common causes of it? Well, you know, that's it's a pretty simple question, but it's a difficult answer. Uh, just to kind of put in perspective, about, I think it was 20, uh, 2007, the Tear Film and Ocular Service Society had their first dry eye workshop. They call it the Do's, and this was called the Do's One. And the goal of this was to characterize and define and gain a consensus on the understanding and treatment management of dry eye. And they put out a paper that was like 350 pages long. So, (laughs) (laughs) and sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Sorry, continue. That's just overkill, but go ahead. ahead. No kidding, right? So, uh, they had a second workshop in 2017, a decade later, to try and really uh, add to the understanding. And there, are, there have been some changes to the definition, but it's still, a, it's still a mouthful. Let me just give it a try here. I'm looking. I'll, I'll just dictate it. It's not what I, you know, that's not top of mind in the clinic when you're working and practicing in eye care. But technically, the definition that that they use is dry eye is a multifactorial disease of the ocular surface characterized by a loss of homeostasis at the tear film and accompanied by ocular symptoms. That's something that changed. I think the first definition didn't require symptoms, but now the definition does say that it does have ocular symptoms in which tear film instability and hyperosmolarity, ocular surface inflammation and damage and neurosensory abnormalities play etiological roles. So that's the definition. Now, I don't know if that's, you know, if that actually clarifies things or brings up more questions. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's super, super clear right now. <laughs> so, okay, let me, let me just 
just grab onto that a little bit. Okay. So, um, and we're going to jump around a little bit. I mean, this is a conversation. It's not really a, uh, we haven't rehearsed this in any way, shape or form. So I'm going to kind of grab onto a little bit of what you said and move forward. So, um, it's referring to the tier film. So the tier film, what does it do? What does the tier film do and what kind of things can go wrong with it that could cause dry eye? Well, the, the tear film protects the eye from desiccation uh, into the atmosphere. So the, the cornea needs a protective layer on the outside of it, not only for, for normal functioning and what they call homeostasis in this, this instance. There are some nutrients and immune factors in the tears. It's there to protect the eye, even collect dust, and there's a fluid dynamic to the tear film such that there's not, it's not a stagnant pool of water. It's always moving and flushing uh, dust or and debris out of the tear, out of the surface of the eye. Uh, it also plays a role in vision. If you have an instable tear film, one of the first things that people complain about is blurry vision. They try and read their iPad and it's all blurry. Then they rub their eyes a bit and blink a few times and it's kind of clear. And then it goes blurry again. That's a telltale sign of, of dry eye or an instable tear film. And that it really, you have to get into the chemistry of what makes up a tear film, but just to kind of circle back to your question before we get too far, um, I would say it plays a protective role and a visual role and role in maintaining homeostasis, uh, at the ocular surface. So the tissues, including the conjunctiva and the, uh, the corneal epithelium and the interface okay, between the, the eyelid I should also mention just the blinking, the blink action, decreasing friction from your blinks as well. It's like a lubricating surface, you know? No, so that's fair. That's, that's perfect. So whenever you're going back to the definition, it was talking about symptoms such as, you know, irritation in the eye. Does that irritation arise from, you know, the tear film? Like, I, you know, you talk about the chemistry, the composition of it, but can it be, can dry eye be a lack of the tear film? or composition changes or both that could cause, you know, one of the reasons maybe for the irritation is that mechanical um, friction between the eyelid and the eye, if the tear film was not what it should be, for lack of a better way to say that. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, it, it, it comes back to this definition, and, and they are right to say this is a multifactorial disease. Um you know, and I, well, in, in healthcare in general, it, it's helpful to be able to put people into categories, even on these variables, which are technically more continuous or they're not categorical. It's like these are spectrums of, of uh, disease and different uh, severities and combinations of etiological factors. But really, we have to try and figure out a way to classify things so that there can be a stepwise approach and a standardized approach and how to provide care so that people aren't just kind of like, you know, trying things at a whim. So classically dry eye has been divided into what's known as evaporative dry eye, which is where the tear film evaporates and breaks up too quickly. And the other uh, type would be aqueous insufficiency where it's just, there's not enough tear production. And that's associated with diseases such as uh, Sjogren's syndrome, which can be, it's associated with dry eye, but technically um, is, is not dry eye, although it does have dry eye symptoms. As you can see, it can get a little bit complex with the definition here, and it's still not totally clear 
uh, I don't think across the board, I don't think all practitioners are all subscribing to the same definition because a lot of times you'll see a Sjogren's patient and you'll say, oh, this patient has severe dry eye. It doesn't quite fit the definition because the definition requires a differential diagnosis suggesting that this case is different. This is Sjogren's related dry eye. At the end of the day though, this person, like somebody with Sjogren's would have insufficient tear production due to an autoimmune response uh, affecting the lacrimal gland up in the brow. So their, their um, lacrimal gland just isn't producing enough aqueous. Now that's So aqueous in, in terms of uh, chemistry is referring to the water component of the tear layer. We should have a water layer and we should also have a lipid layer. So if you don't have enough water layer, then clearly you're not going to have a very good tear layer. You also need a lipid layer for it to work properly as well, though. If you think of think of an oil spill or any any type of uh, lipid on top of water, it floats on the top and it forms kind of a slick, and it has some surface surface tension to it as well. So it, at the surface of the eye, this is how it it works as well. You have an aqueous layer that's directly against your ocular surface, and on the outer part of that, there's a lipid layer, and that lipid layer prevents the aqueous layer from simply evaporating off really quickly because it's a really thin film and it can evaporate very fast. But if you have this lipid layer on there, it holds the tear, it creates a surface tension, prevents it from evaporating and uh, distributes it across the the ocular surface more evenly, uh, which provides more clear sight. So you're not looking through different thicknesses or different compositions of tear layer, or it's not pooling down at the bottom of your eye. And when you blink, it's splashing and all that. So people who have, um, have, uh, evaporative dry eye, basically you could also say that they have liquid lipid deficiency. Um, so I guess the, the next thing I should mention is where does this lipid come from? I said the aqueous comes from the lacrimal gland. We have little lipid glands along our eyelid margin called meibomian glands. And they're basically like sebaceous glands that are pointed at your, your eye. They're kind of close to where your eyelashes connect to your eyelid. And every time you blink, the eyelids are supposed to connect together. And then when they open, a little bit of this oil is drawn out of these glands. But if you imagine some people, it's very common, actually, we don't blink all the way closed or there might be makeup clogging along the glands or possibly just those glands over time have dried up a little bit and aren't producing as much, uh, mybum is the technical word for the lipid that comes out of it. In these cases, it leads to, uh, evaporative, uh, dry eye and discomfort and, and the, all the symptoms that we find associated with dry eye disease. Okay. No, I mean, this is, I have about 400 questions to follow up with that. So, uh, I mean, this is, I have some background in this, but not near what you have. Right. So I know we've talked before about dry eye and uh, how it almost seems, um, paradoxical for some patients. They could be diagnosed with a dry eye, but they could have be tearing up constantly. Um, is that, is that tearing up constantly? like an overproduction of the aqueous because the, you know, the lacrimal glands are trying to compensate for this evaporating too quickly, or am I just kind of off in left field here? No, you're totally right. That's bang on. 
<laughs> I think, I, think you, uh, I, I promise I promise to the people listening that you didn't give me that answer before. That's just my <laughs> get A on that test, but I'll, I'm sure I'll fail the next one. So sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, that's exactly like it, it comes back to restoring the homeostasis uh, at the ocular surface. And when it's disturbed, you can get a vicious cycle of tearing, uh, but those tears aren't actually functioning normally if they don't have that lipid layer or maybe they have hyperosmolarity they have too many immune cells in them and of course immune cells are produced in response it's uh part of the innate immune system inflammatory response and it's there to fight off any foreign invaders but it's also toxic to our own tissues as well it's toxic to any biological tissues through oxidative stress and so on so if you have a lot of these molecules that are being produced by our own body that are in the tear film even if your eyes are watery the the tear is kind of irritating like that. It's not soothing the eye. So you still get that burning sensation and you have to restore homeostasis in a way. So in these cases, if it's autoimmune related, we have to use steroids to try and interrupt the, that vicious cycle. Um, sometimes supplementing the tear film with artificial tears to improve the, uh, the, the uh, content or the, the lipid content or to dilute some of that osmolarity, something to restore the homeostasis. And, um, we, when we think of dry, we often think of like a red irritated eye and it's not happy and something's not working right. So we try these different strategies to try and restore things. It is totally possible too, that sometimes people can get uh, more neuropathic pain and they can have a white eye. And those are really tough cases when people come in and they're in a lot of pain related to dry eye and they've tried everything that's dry eye treatment related and their eye looks nice and white. So sometimes you can get all the symptoms without the signs. So it's a really difficult area of practice. Um, and there's become a more understanding. These things can be related to even like trigeminal neuralgia or dysphoria, some people call it. There was a product out, I think it's off the market now, but it was from Allergan for a while. It's, it was called the True Tear or something like that. I never really had much experience with it, but this was a device where you could stimulate through the nose, through the tip of the nose, some of the ciliary fibers that come off of the ophthalmic branch of the trigeminal nerve, you could stimulate those nerve fibers and it would kind of like reset some of the electronic or electric traffic along that nerve because it's almost something was goes wrong. If there's chronic, uh, chronic irritation or damage done at the ocular surface, or even along the trigeminal nerve along the ophthalmic branch, sometimes you can kind of have like a referred pain onto the ocular surface and you have to do something to change the rhythm or to reset the whole system. So it seemed like, although this device, basically what you'd stick it up your nose and it would kind of irritate your nose and make your eyes water. And this was, was a dry eye treatment. There were some suggestions that the actual mechanism of action of it was basically it was resetting some of the trigeminal sensation. So it, it, it comes back to that idea of trying to restore homeostasis of, for, that, for that person, trying different strategies to intervene, I guess you could say. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to bounce around a little bit here um, to symptoms. Most common symptoms that patients present with that uh, ultimately are diagnosed with dry eyes. You had this at the top one or two symptoms. I'm, I know you mentioned 
blurry vision a little bit earlier. Is that by far and away the most common symptom or are there other symptoms that uh, or signs that uh, patients present with? Well, I would say that in my experience, it's mostly people complain about blurry vision. Um, then if you ask them, do your eyes also burn sometimes, then you also get a, a yes with that. But often in, in my world, the first, the uh, chief complaint is typically uh, when reading, especially at nighttime, the eyes get very blurry and people sometimes think it's their glasses. They want to get their glasses fixed. But of course, if it's an intermittent blur, it's not really glasses related or glasses aren't a variable that would account for that uh, typically. So instead, it's um, it, it can be the instable tear film, uh, which changes with every blink and thereby changes the vision with every blink. So, yeah, I find in my world, that's mostly the, the chief complaint. But for sure, there's uh, there's also uh, red, irritated eyes, the actual sensation of having dry eyes um, and uh, tired, tired eyes, hard to keep them open, sometimes sometimes itchy as well, but that can uh, be confounded by allergies as well. Um, also watery eyes, watery eyes is a, you mentioned that as well. It can also be watery eyes and it's so unsatisfying to say, Oh, you have dry eye and the person looks at you like, what? <laughs> so yeah. And then you have to, so no, you're lying. You're lying to me. You're just like, you're lying. You're, <laughs> yeah, you're lying. It's, it's okay. <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's like, it's like when I'm playing hockey and I'm a kid and the coach is like, you're really good. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I know I'm not. I'm, I'm not good. So <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> you're wrong coach. Complete, complete aside. Sorry. Go, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. Coach, I think. Okay. I think a couple of times. Yeah. I think I got some, <laughs> got some those teams though. So, <laughs> so okay. Now I want to just, uh, you did mention Sjogren's disease. Um, are there other, causes i guess that are i guess i'm assuming that there are causes that are more minor and then there are causes that are more severe so let's start with that for a second if if they have dry eye based on what they know about it based on this highly informative conversation that we're having um what can they do before going to an optometrist an ophthalmologist um, what can they do themselves to try to alleviate symptoms? And if that doesn't help, I'm assuming they should seek medical attention. Mm, yes. Yeah. It at home, you know, there are some home-based strategies in general. It is nice to find out really what the etiology of, of these, the form of dry eye is what underlies it. So you kind of do have to get the professional opinion of an ophthalmologist or an optometrist at that point, or, or try to anyway. But um, in terms of treatment, we can use hot compresses, the purpose of which is to literally heat up the eyelids and make those glands sweat. Like those glands, they can get clogged up. The mybum that's in them can become solidified. You can think of like butter, you know, like it doesn't take a lot of heat. You melt it, but then it, when it cools off, it becomes solid again. Uh, sometimes, like I mentioned, some people don't blink all the way closed. Just even being more mindful, taking breaks at the computer, making sure when you're blinking, your eyelids actually connect because they have to connect in order to draw out a bit of that oil with each blink. If we're just kind of like halfway flicking the eyelids up and down, but they're not connecting, there's a chronically exposed area of cornea that's always going to have dryness there. Um, 
So taking lots of breaks at the computer, there's even blinking exercises. If you look this up on YouTube, that's a real thing, believe it or not. Uh, there, you know, that that's something I don't really recommend very much with patients because it's sort of like a bit underwhelming again, but, and there's probably some more effective things out there, but certainly doesn't hurt out of all the health crazes and things that we do like supplements and whatever, you know, like that's something you can, you can certainly try <laughs> without doing any damage, you know? Um, so breaks, blinking exercises, hot compresses, 10 minutes. It takes a good 10 minutes to heat those glands up. So if you get yourself a magic bag or, uh, you can buy these Therapearl eye masks or brooder masks, they're basically like a bean bag or a rice bag. You heat it up in the microwave, put it on the eyes and close the eyes and let the heat soak into the eyelids. You can make, uh, I've actually worked in some areas where we, uh, try like a little community-based thing and people would make their own, or we had people making them out of old material and rice. And, uh, and then we, you did some fundraisers with that kind of thing. That's a bit of an aside, but that, and then artificial tears. So artificial tears are a mainstay. That's, you know, everyone who goes to the pharmacy sees a whole row full of artificial tears. It's hard to, you know, hard for people to choose. It's a lot of different colors, different brands and everything. Uh, it's, it's like everything else. You kind of do get what you pay for. If you get the cheapest one out there, um, I don't want, I don't want to mention all the brands or whatever, but there are different quality levels there too. So people have to do a bit of research and it is good to consult with their, uh, with their eye care professional about it. But if you grab one of the sustain products or the refresh products, um, over the counter, that's a good start. I would say. Um, healthy diet, healthy lifestyle, getting enough sleep, making sure you're hydrated and like literally drinking water, not drinking too much coffee and alcohol, uh, avoiding smoking, avoiding even secondhand smoke, avoiding air pollution. So many things wearing sunglasses when you're outside. So, so many simple things like household based remedies that, that people can start with for sure. Not for sure. And I think like you said, uh, some of those suggestions would probably be underwhelming in that, Hey, great, but I've got two dogs. I've got three kids. I've got two jobs. So tell me how I'm going to sleep more. Right. But I could do artificial tears and put a hot, <laughs> yeah, com exactly. hot yeah. compress on my, on my face though. So, um, no, I think, you know, I think this is a uh, pretty good info all around. Uh, I, I have one or two follow-up questions here just cause I, you know, I could dive into this for a long time. I don't even know how long we've been here, but, um, Let's is there see. any sort of, uh, gender or age, risk factors for dry eye yes like that yeah sorry i think i i think you were getting at that before i had some risk factors and causes um so again it is it is good to try and find a, a causal connection so that the treatment can be directed at the, the cause and uh, some risk factors do include like you mentioned uh as a, as people age, the skin does get older, you know, or it gets these glands do produce less oil. The skin gets less oily over time, loses elasticity. So the actual tautness of the eyelid against the ocular surface changes over time. That's something we can't really change much is, you know, is aging. And, um, that's a whole different, whole different story, I guess. But, um, that, and, uh, yes, women who are post-menopause are, are at higher risk, uh, certain medications, antihypertensives, antihistamines, uh, can, uh, pose a, a greater risk factor for acquiring dry eye. Systemic. Do you really have to do a full, uh, sorry, you have to do like a full workup of these patients to know 
I mean, well, you know, um, sex and age and, and whatnot is fine. But like you say, if they're taking other kind of medications or certain lifestyle factors to try oh, to yeah. tease out what's modifiable, what's not, is this something that you just need hot compress and artificial tears? You need steroids. You need, I don't know if you need antibiotics or like it's a, it's a full, uh, it seems like such a, it would be such a, from an outsider's perspective, like from, you know, before this conversation, I don't know a lot about dry eye, but co- coming into this conversation, like, oh yeah, you probably go in and yeah, you have dry eye and here's a, you know, one of three different prescriptions I can get, get, give you and you're going to be fine and goodbye, but it's not quite that simple, is it? Oh, it's actually, yeah, it's really complex and it, it's, it's tough because yeah, it, like you mentioned before, like, you know, people are, are paying for a consultation. They want to, they want something that's practical. That's going to fix things quickly. And then we go into this big story about um, all potential causes and different treatment ideas, some of which are require sort of like a, you know, a routine. It's crazy. Like dentists are really good at getting us to brush our teeth. That's something I often think about. It's just standard. You got to brush your teeth twice a day. But with eye carrots, we can't get people to do these hot compresses even once a day. And so there are some things that that we do have to change culturally that we have to do a better job of explaining to people why we need to do these things even before we start to have wear and tear on our body. Uh, you know, it's like a, an ounce of prevention kind of thing. So I think in in the eye care world, we we do have a little ways to go to do a little bit better at uh, making it more culturally acceptable, more normal to uh, have some of these healthy eye care practices. But you're right. Yeah, you do have to get into um, into a full workup, really, to uh, uh, to figure out what might be going on with somebody's eyes. Um, and then you have to try and explain it in a way that's understandable to to the patient or that, that means something. Because as you can see, like a lot of this stuff is just like really fairly sciencey. And you, you come in to an exam, you're not expecting that sometimes. So I often try to use analogies. Like I use analogy of windshield wipers. That's the eyelids. And the windshield washer fluid, that's the tears. And all the different things that can go wrong with your car. You can run out of windshield washer fluid. The fluid might be not very good. Uh, the windshield wipers might wear out. The windshield might be dusty. All these different things kind of, you can use analogies to relate to the eyes. And, you know, we're not a car. We can't go out and get some new windshield wipers. We can't go out and get new eyelids. I mean, so we have to do things to try and maintain them. And we have to try and motivate people and get them engaged in that. And that's one of the hardest parts, um, you know, but thankfully there are some awesome therapies out there now. Like it's uh, even the in-office stuff. Uh, you mentioned the steroids. That's great. You have to use steroid bursts sometimes to pulse therapy to interrupt these vicious cycles that can start to occur in cases of dry eye. And that can help to restore homeostasis. There's also for people who don't want to be doing these hot compresses and whatnot, there's in-office procedures that can last a little longer. There's lippy flow. This is a device that massages and warms up those meibomian glands. Uh, there's also uh, other ways to warm up the glands, such as radio frequency uh, tools that you can use in office, which also tighten up the skin. So have an added benefit of getting rid of some crow's feet around the eyes. So people love that, of course, too. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, there are lots of things out there. And I always start with the, you know, the smallest risk one, the most basic household, most affordable options. 
because that's, it just makes sense. That's where we, we should start and go through a stepwise approach. But then there's always more that can be done. Even wearing scleral contact lenses, functioning as moisture chambers to always hold a tear, like right on the eye. And then with these things, they're like a shield on your eye. You can stare at a fan and you can't even feel the dryness, you know, but you have to learn how to put scleral contacts in and out. And that's sort of like contact lens boot camp for some people. It's kind of intense. So we have to start with the easy stuff first and work our way through. But yeah, I, I never want people to think like they've reached the end of the line and they just have to live with this irritated eye for the rest of their life, you know? Well, it sounds like, so you probably see some patients, you know, two, three, four times before you can try to get to, you know, some sort of resolution, I'm guessing in this case, right? It's true. Yeah. It's, you have to actually, you know, form a, uh, from a, a level of trust with people so that they you know, trust the process too and stick with it. It requires, it's, it's like having a personal trainer has that you're more effective at the gym because you have the, um, the accountability and you have somebody helping you. Uh, this is kind of the same. Like it's hard to just send someone home once and say like, here, you know, here's all your tools. This is all the information now. Good luck. You know, Oftentimes you have to provide a support role and encouragement role. This is something that goes through, you know, there's some ups and downs, there's plateaus. And, uh, and also we sometimes have to co-manage with the other uh, parts of the medical care team so that any other factors can be modified as needed as well. So it's a, it's a team approach between the, uh, the different doctors and the, the patients as well. No, okay. This is, this is good, but listen, I think this is probably a good point to, to wrap it up. We can probably dive into this for, for hours. Like I said, I've, uh, I have a few notes here that I want to dive into. We can either do that offline or in another episode, but this is good, Steve. Thanks to Dr. Stephen McIntosh, but I'm going to call you Steve. I've known you since you were four. Uh, and that's uh, eons ago for us, uh, old, old fellows here, but listen, thanks for uh, sharing your uh, experience and, and knowledge uh, with the audience. And I know we're going to be doing uh, many more of these in the future and different eye diseases. So uh, I'm sure that everyone listening and myself included are, are looking forward to those. So thanks again. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care.